tonight, um, Colin, Leo, uh, and Tariq, and all of you will be joining us in our living room. Uh, we'll be hosting the call from here tonight and for the remainder of the series. Um, so get comfortable and we hope that you're all doing okay. Okay, so Jeremy Corbyn's election as Labour leader in 2015 inspired hundreds of thousands of people to join the Labour Party to fight for socialism. Since then, socialists in the party have faced the challenge of not just getting Corbyn and other socialists elected, but also mobilizing an activist base in and outside of electoral politics, democratizing the party and bringing forward a transformative agenda. For the, for the last five years, and especially in December, we've really had to face up to just how tough this is going to be. We want to take the chance to talk with Leo, Colin and Sam and others, because they have been complaining about these problems for much longer than we have. So we thought it would be good to get some historical perspective on these issues with them, along with some of the guests. Um, so as we said, this is a five-part series of webinars. It's loosely based on Leo and Colin's new book, Searching for Socialism, the project of uh, the Labour New Left from Ben to Corbyn. Verso uh, Books, the publisher, have created a reading list tailored to this series. It's 50% off um, until May the 24th. So if you want the book, be sure to order it in time for the rest of the course. Um, the next Two, uh, two webinars, we'll be doing readings primarily from uh, Leo and Colin's book. And you can find it at bit.ly slash TWTverso. And that's where the entire reading list is. And we'll post that in the chat as well. Um, as you probably have seen, each webinar comes with a set of short and long optional readings, as well as videos and podcasts that we've tried to choose to um, go with the theme of each, uh, of each event. And you can find those on the TWT website or in the Facebook event. In today's session, we're going to be talking about the Labour Party and the spirit of 1945. So after a decade of economic depression and total war, Clement Attlee's Labour government laid the foundations for today's welfare state with a programme of nationalisations and mass public investment. What seems commonplace now, universal healthcare or widespread council housing was radical then. We're going to be looking at how post-war labour, in particular Nye Bevan, were able to pursue this agenda, most notably pushing through healthcare that is public, universal and free at the point of use, so based on socialist principles and the first of its kind anywhere in the world. These principles are key because, as we've seen even more clearly in today's crisis, the health of each one of us depends on the health of everybody else. Bevan's agenda involved battles not just with the Tories, but also within the Labour Party, with the civil service and the doctors themselves. Then we'll also be look, asking what lessons we can learn for our own agenda to rebuild the NHS, thinking about the coronavirus pandemic and beyond. Um, in later sessions, we're going to be looking at the experience of Tony Benn and Labour's New Left in the 1970s. Uh, we'll look at the turn to the right from the 1980s. We'll look at international experiences, comparing uh, the movement around Corbyn with Sanders, Bernie Sanders in the US, as well as Syriza um, and others. And we'll also look at the coronavirus and the crisis this time. Uh, sessions are, as you said, every other Thursday, same virtual time, same virtual place, um, and do try the <laughs> real time virtual place, whichever way. Uh, <laughs> and do try to check out some of the readings or, or videos before each session, um, as they'll give some useful context for what uh, Leo and others will be saying. Um, we're going to begin this session with a 20-minute introduction from Leo and Colin, um, and that'll be the same in each one. After that, Tariq is going to give his response, and then we'll open up for a Q&A on issues related to the Labour Party in the post-war era. And then after that, we'll have a second sort of Q&A, uh, bringing discussion up to date by looking at the relevance of these issues 
to our own project for rebuilding the NHS and socialism in the 21st century. Um, and when questions do come up for you, when Colin, uh, Leo, and Tariq are speaking, please do post them in the chat. Uh, we'll be watching the questions as they arrive, and we and the speakers will try our best to cover them. Um, when these, this isn't possible, we'll try to fold them into uh, follow-up questions. Okay, so let me just quickly introduce tonight's speakers. Um, first, we have Leo Panich. Leo is Canadian. Canadian. <laughs> Canada Research Chair in Comparative Political Economy and Distinguished Research Professor of Political Science at York University. Editor of Socialist Register for 25 years, his many books include A Different Kind of State, The End of Parliamentary Socialism with Colin Lees, and The Making of Global Capitalism with Sam Gindon. Also joining us tonight is Leo's longtime collaborator, Colin Lees. Colin is Emeritus Professor of Political Studies at Queen's University Canada. His previous books include Politics in Britain, The Rise and Fall of Development Theory, and with Leo Panich, The End of Parliamentary Socialism. And finally, tonight, we are excited to have Tariq Ali joining us as a respondent to Leo and Colin, uh, a towering figure on the UK left. Tariq is a longtime editor of the New Left Review. So just before we get started, we want to take this opportunity to plug the TWT Supporters Network. We know that many people are in tough financial situations, especially right now. And we will always ensure that content like this call is available free of charge to everyone. However, if you do think calls like this are important in this time of global crisis and uncertainty and are secure financially, please consider supporting The World Transformed. The coronavirus crisis poses an existential threat to independent grassroots organizations like us. So if you are able to donate five pounds a month, it would, be, it would make a huge difference in enabling us to scale up and sustain our political education work. You can sign up at theworldtransformed.org slash support, which you can see in the chat. Um, and so without any further ado, Leo and Colin, please tell us about the spirit of 1945 and the building of the NHS. Well, thank you very much for uh, putting on this event. I must say seeing Raquel and Kyla sitting there together, it almost makes me feel like I'm back in a Toronto socialist project meeting. Uh, I, I think it was a very good idea to want to go back uh, to 1945 uh, as a way of launching a reflection uh, on uh, where we're at in the wake of uh, Corbyn's replacement uh, and what the left should be doing in that context today. I would actually want to begin, however, by taking us back before 1945. As the preface uh, to Searching for Socialism that Colin and I wrote uh, opens with, uh, each of the great crises of capitalism over the last hundred years, uh, the Great Depression, the crisis of the 1970s, and the crisis after the 2008-09 uh, financial collapse uh, brought uh, forward uh, a socialist to the leadership of the Labour Party uh, and uh, uh, also instantiated a shift to the left in party policy. Uh, as we point out, uh, uh, the 
29 crash and the Great Depression that followed um, uh, led to the 1929 labor government by 1931 imposing terrible austerity uh, on the working class. And in that context, labor MPs, the majority of labor MPs wouldn't support that by 1931. And the Prime Minister MacDonald uh, went into a national unity government with the Liberals and the Tories. This led to a split in the Labour Party and the majority of the Labour Party, including the parliamentarians and the unions, uh, uh, were then divorced from the government. And in that context, there was a remarkable shift to the left in the party, uh, which was heralded by George Lansbury becoming leader. He was a pacifist socialist. Uh, he had organized a enormous demonstration and meeting uh, uh, on the night of the Russian Revolution in London. He was most famous for having led the Poplar, which is today Tower Hamlets, council in opposition to the imposition of very high rates, much higher rates than were paid in the rich parts of the city of London. And 30 councillors, including him and his daughter, were imprisoned uh, for leading that opposition. She caught pneumonia in prison and died. So Lansbury was a major figure on the left. Uh, and alongside that, uh, Labour Party conferences passed a lot of radical resolutions calling for public ownership and moreover, uh, calling for industrial democracy, workers' control within nationalized industries. By 1935, Lansbury was out. He uh, only lasted as long as Corbyn did. Uh, he had already been despairing for how little the spirit of the Parliamentary Labour Party had changed. The great street demonstrations, of course, were led by communists uh, or by other elements, and the labor MPs had virtually nothing to do with them to Lansbury's dismay. Uh, moreover, by 1935, the Labour Party endorsed rearmament in light of what was happening with the rise of fascism uh, in, in uh, Europe, uh, and Lansbury as a pacifist was extremely unhappy with that. He was replaced by a much more responsible team of labor leaders. To a significant extent, they accepted the shift to the left in policy. But that was the team that led labor into the 1945 election. First led them into the, of course, wartime coalition, and then into the 1945 election, which they won. But it needs to remember, be remembered uh, that the Labour Party, uh, very radical for the Labour Party program in 1945, Let Us Face the Future, which contained so many radical proposals, was not something that the leadership had entirely been enthusiastic about, especially around public ownership and industrial democracy. They had opposed this at the 1944 Labour Party conference, opposed being committed to putting that in. Uh, and it had been passed despite that, despite their advice that those resolutions should be withdrawn. Now, I don't want to imply in any sense that the reforms that were introduced and 53 bills were passed by that Labour government in its first year, it was a remarkably active government. And the reforms that were passed were real reforms. They were very substantial economic and social reforms. There's no 
doubt about this. Nevertheless, when Sagittarius, who used to write a humorous column in the New Statesman and Nation in that period, wrote a couple of years later, a little poem that went, the revolutionary wave has passed, uh, it, it's passed its peak. It only lasted for election week. Uh, and, and by the time he wrote that, most socialists in Britain, uh, a great many working class activists felt that the revolutionary spirit was gone. Uh, no one, of course, was expecting an insurrection out of the Labour Party, even in 1945, uh, nor should they have been. Uh, that wouldn't have been a sensible strategy. Uh, but the spirit of, of, of its, its, its victory uh, was already dissipated by 47. Although 20% of British industry was nationalized, uh, the kinds of nationalizations that were undertaken involved substantial compensation, especially in the case of mining, uh, to industries that were virtually bankrupt. And capitalists who owned those industries were able to use those for accumulation elsewhere. On top of that, the commitment to industrial democracy that had been passed in the 33 Labour Party conference, again in the 44 Labour Party conference, was not at all adhered to. And instead, what you got was the type of what is known as Morrisonian corporation, that is a type of public utility that had been introduced at a local level in the pre-war period, uh, which uh, uh, was not run on democratic grounds, was run on the basis of competence or indeed people with status who were incompetent being appointed to run those industries. Uh, and certainly not socialists being appointed to run those industries. Moreover, the Bank of England was nationalized, which was a major advance, but it continued to function as the conduit of the city of London vis-a-vis -vis the British state. In that sense, its role was completely unchanged. And the rest of the state apparatus was similarly not changed. Of course, expertise was brought in, uh, often of a radical nature to introduce the social reforms, but in terms of the structure of the apparatus, its hierarchical nature, that was never addressed. That was most clearly seen in the case of the Foreign Office. And it was certainly in uh, British foreign policy, in imperial policy, that the Labour government proved most disappointing very, very often, uh, uh, which had a great deal to do with what my former co-editor of the Socialist Register, John Saville, called the mind of the Foreign Office. Uh, and, and the Foreign Office was doing all it could to hold on to the old British Empire while being integrated into the new informal American Empire. That also had domestic consequences. By 1948, it wasn't only a matter of the alignment with the American Empire uh, uh, instantiating the Cold War, and indeed Ernest Bevan, the great leader of the Transport and General Workers Union, who was at the head of the Foreign Office, was one of the key figures in starting the Cold War. It wasn't just a matter then of doing everything to ensure uh, that socialism in Greece uh, would be defeated. It was also a matter of adhering to pressure from Washington, which was being installed everywhere in Europe along with the Marshall Plan, uh, to impose conditionality on that economic aid. 
And that began to push fiscal restrictions on each of the European countries, including the British, beyond what had been there in terms of the debts that was owed the United States after the war. Uh, that led uh, the labor government by 1948 to be introducing wage restraint and expecting of its trade union uh, leader allies to impose wage restraint on its own members, just as price controls and rationing, what was known as the bonfire of controls, uh, which Harold Wilson, uh, as a very young minister, was introducing, was being undertaken. Uh, when I was doing my first research on the Labour Party, one of the most uh, uh, remarkable pieces of, of, of uh, research I came across uh, in the TUC library was a speech from a woman cleaner at the 1948 Trade Union Congress, where Stafford Cripps, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who had been a Marxist socialist calling for violent revolution, or at least pointing to the need for one in the 1930s, uh, he had come to the Trade Union Congress demanding wage restraint. Uh, he was a famous ascetic, uh, a vegan, and this woman cleaner from the Transport and General Workers Union uh, in Whitehall, a night cleaner, got up and said, Sir Stafford Cripps may be able to live on radish tops and orange juice, but he can't expect the British working class to do the same. And what you saw there was evidence of class struggle inside the Labour Party. Uh, I'll just end with this. Uh, by that time, the wind was already in the sails of uh, the British capitalist class. Uh, their opposition to the extension of nationalization to the iron and steel industry was massive. And that led to a great deal of dithering on the part of the labor leadership before it tried to go ahead with that uh, uh, by the end of its term. Uh, and it has to be said that the type of compromises with capital, uh, that the social reforms, the radical reforms, went along with, meant that far from them being building blocks for going further towards socialism, they became kind of an endpoint rather than an opening up to a further so socialist strategy. So much was this the case that uh, it's almost laughable now. If we go back and read Anthony Crossland's The Future of Socialism, which was the Bible of the social democratic uh, parties, not only in Britain, but across Europe in the 1950s. If you go back and read that, what does he say? He says, uh, you were a mental pygmy if you weren't a Marxist in the 1930s. But by the 1950s, by the 1950s, he says, uh, we're in a situation where the balance between capital and labor is now even, where the state is no longer beholden to the capitalist class, and where the capitalist class itself is no longer beholden to finance. What can we say uh, all these decades later to think that that was the Bible of social democracy in the 1950s, when this is so patently uh, not the case with capitalism 
uh, in the decades that followed. Now, a lot of this finally, I have to say, also has to do with the ineffectiveness of the left. During the 1945 period and in the 1950s. And this too, therefore, needs to be uh, uh, borne in mind. Of course, the Labour Party apparatus by the late 40s and through the 1950s became extremely good at one thing, and that was prescriptions and expulsions. Expulsing anybody who was uh, assumed to be part, uh, uh, in line with communist sympathies uh, and much later uh, uh, with Trotskyist ones or even radical ones. Uh, that left was poorly organized. Uh, its primary leader, Nye Bevin, the talk Colin will talk about, well, certainly the most radical figure in the government, the most creative, would consistently go to Labour Party conferences and demand of his supporters that they support the government. Embraced himself a mixed economy uh, by 1949 explicitly. And Harold Lasky, the great socialist who was chairman of the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party, did the same in the late 1940s, although he privately told friends repeatedly that it would be a much easier task to win over the majority of the British population to socialism than it would be to win over much of the Labour leadership to socialism. Uh, I'll end with that. Thank you. <coughs> Colin. Over to, uh, thanks, Leo. Over to Colin. Hello, and thank you for inviting me. Um, <clears throat> I want to mainly throw some ideas out about democratic uh, public ownership. Uh, well, as Leo has already intimated, the dreams of uh, radical industrial democracy from the 1930s were not followed through in the 45 to 50 government. And I think uh, we need to revisit this question in a way that hasn't quite happened. John McDonald's introduction of the report for, of alternative models of ownership, in a couple of speeches, he made a strong case for, for this um, on three ground, grounds, it seems to me. One is uh, <clears throat> that if you don't have work, democracy at work, you don't have the confidence to fight for the things you want politically, which I think is a really important insight. Secondly, <clears throat> unless organizations <clears throat> are democratic, they don't take advantage of the expertise of their workforces. Second important point. Thirdly, I think public organizations and corporations, public services only remain public <clears throat> if they're democratic. I mean, Leo's just made the point, and I won't expand on it, that the erosion of the so-called balance of power, really, between the public and private sectors has been the story of the last 50 years in particular. Um, but the, the illusion that there was some stable balance between, of, between public sector and the private market uh, was the, one of the biggest illusions, I think, of social democracy and remains so. And so if you're not going to fall for that, you've got to think about what it is you need to do to defend the public ownership of your public operations. Uh, so I want to take the NHS as an example uh, and quickly look at what it was and what it is and what it might be. 
although it was a brand new organization, it followed the same pattern that Leo has described, the Morrisonian conception of a public organization. NHS hospitals were supposed to be run by the doctors, nurses, and administrators acting in a consensus. In practice, they were run by, basically run by consultants, senior hospital doctors, uh, <coughs> uh, in alliance with administrators. The rest of the NHS, much the largest part of it, uh, was had no such conception of shared uh, decision-making. Um, GPs were and still are mostly independent contractors to the NHS. Uh, they're completely, uh, no suggestion of a democratic presence there. And as for the rest of the, all the community services, all the other branches of the NHS, uh, which far the greatest part of contact providing of care, no trace of democracy there. And for 25 years, this didn't matter. People were so grateful, so pleased to have free access to healthcare uh, that <clears throat> they were content with what they got. It was only when <clears throat> later on, and, and during that time, the conservatives didn't dare to touch it. It was, a, it was absolutely no-go area for them. Um, but when the memory of what it was like not to have an NHS faded, then <clears throat> the mantra of what matters is what works, Blair's great mantra, uh, the idea that choice would become more important. You had choice in every sphere of your life. Why not in your healthcare? A new generation was more susceptible to being persuaded by that. And marketization was pushed ahead first by, basically first under John Major, then by <clears throat> uh, Blair and Brown, um, pushed ahead. Decision-making on health policy uh, was put in the hands of business managers. Cost-cutting and auditing replaced the notion of serving the public and the public service ethos, which would introduce other considerations in all decision-making. And a key component of the NHS that went under in this process was public health. That's to say, the branch of the NHS charged with protecting the public, promoting collective health as opposed to treating individuals. Public health was downgraded and run down and we're now living with the consequences. Kyla's asked me to expand on that a little bit and, um, and I'll try, okay? Um, <clears throat> basically, I think looking at what's happening now, organizational changes made particularly in the 2012 Health and Social Care Act were very important, but I think it's less the structures that changed as the whole management culture of health policy. The Department of Health started recruiting people from the private sector, the so-called interims on a large scale, and the culture became very, very market-oriented. Hospital managers were operating under increasingly strict austerity principles, underfunding became chronic after, 20, after 2008 and the leading role was always taken by accountants. So the, there was the whole culture of thinking about health became marketized. Health was thought of as a commodity that the NHS was doling out as opposed to something that was a problem for the entire population, had all kinds of other determinants, was subject to all kinds of risks. This was not in the thought process characteristic of NHS policymakers from the, certainly from about 2005 onwards. 
structurally, the chief medical officer, who used to be responsible and formally still is the lead person across government for handling uh, a pandemic or any other health crisis, uh, was left stranded. He no longer had Public Health England reporting to him. He doesn't even have a budget. Um, <clears throat> and I think the disappearance of Chris Whitty from the public scene over the last couple of weeks has been quite interesting for the person who legally is supposed to be in charge of managing the reports. He's just not, this is clearly not, not real. Um, <clears throat> One of the effects was, of course, the dispersion of responsibility around different parts of the NHS. It used to, response to the pandemics used to be the problem of the chief medical officer. Now it seems to be distributed between the Department of Health and Public Health England, which is one, which is a Public Health England is a non-departmental arm of, of the Department of Health. Then there's NHS England, which is legally speaking independent, not subject to take instructions from the Secretary of State from Health, which looks after um, clinical commissioning, commission, which is related to clinical commissioning groups, NHS hospitals and GPs. That's one chain of command. And the third one is the Department of Local Government and Communities, which is linked to local authorities, which is where uh, directors of public health are based around the country. And these are three parallel chains of responsibility are not unified at the top, as I've just pointed out. And an interesting sign of that is that in this country right now, the depth of or height of the pandemic, there is no single website where you can find good up-to-date statistics on what's happening and what are all the rules that have to be followed in some detail. There is no collective place. You go to the Department of Health website, you do not get that kind of information as you do get, for example, in Germany, in one centralized website. So you, the dispersion of responsibility and control is visible in that sort of way. And the result of all this has been the delayed response back in January and February, extraordinary. The failure to have sufficient stocks to deal with of PPE to handle the kind of pandemic that should have been prepared for but was not in the thinking of the people who prepared the last pandemic plan and the inability now to test trace and isolate and support those who are isolated governments scrambling to put something together i'm not suggesting that there could have been a reserve army always waiting to do that but the lack of clear lack of control, lack of planning, lack of coherent thinking about all that is all a result of the marketization of the NHS. Now the government presents itself as a great champion of the NHS, though I'm prepared to bet that when the pandemic is over, the marketization drive, the privatization drive will resume. And in fact, as you noticed, it has been resumed already in the whole sorry testing and uh, tracing saga. But that's another story. The question I really wanted to throw out was what could and should happen instead of this treatment of the NHS? What should it be like? Let's assume a new Labour government is off, it takes office, funds the service properly, gets rid of private providers, and makes public health not just a new powerful arm as it used to be of the NHS, but actually makes public health the criteria, the aim of all government policy, whether it's in housing, education, transportation, and so on. That's, 
the way they basically do in, in Cuba. Um, of course, any public health doctor knows that the causes of the causes, as they call them, the causes of the causes of ill health lie upstream in those policies. And this is something, again, that a strong public health division of the NHS used to play in past times a powerful voice in determining health policy, and that needs to be resurrected. But that still leaves the question of how to make the NHS democratic. If we think those reasons for making it democratic are important, it's complicated because the NHS is a complicated structure. Is it more complex than, say, the supply of energy, which is high on Labour's plans for nationalisation? Uh, I don't myself think so. I think when you come to grips with any major field, such as health or such as energy or such as transportation, you'll find it complicated enough. And I think that the problems that arise are the same, broadly speaking, from one to another. So I don't have a blueprint, but I just wanted to throw out, if I've got two minutes left, to <clears throat> my, my thoughts about this. Discussions of democratization tend to begin with the question of how many worker representatives there should be on the management. Uh, the report on alternative forms of ownership is a case in point when it gets to how public, fully national uh, uh, enterprises should be run. That's what it thinks about. My feeling is that this is beside the point. What would these representatives do on the board of management? Who would they represent? Would they be concerned with workers' wages and working conditions? Would they <clears throat> be concerned? Would they, in fact, take a management view and get preoccupied with the financial stability of the organization? <clears throat> would they, <clears throat> what about enlisting the uh, expertise of the staff. Is that something that you can do from the Board of Management? I don't think so. What's, what's I think very obvious is that what you, what's at issue is not democratizing the management at the top, but democratizing the organization throughout. And for this to happen, I think something that has not been much discussed, but which preoccupies me seems worth trying. And that is what I call accountability downwards accountability by each level to those below it, as opposed to accountability upwards. I mean simply by accountability, not something with penalties attached, but simply being required to report regularly, openly and in person, what has been happening over a fixed, a regular fixed period. This seems to me this is what transparency ought to mean, <clears throat> and that it puts huge power in the hands of the people who receive this account, who listen to it, by getting the information which enables them to question, to challenge, to comment uh, on, on what, is, what is going on. And that in turn constrains the people who have to make this report. The example I have in mind when I think about this is the block GP in Cuba, in Havana, who has to make an annual report to the residents of the block and which is attended and, and commented on by the residents in that way. And that certainly is something for uh, those in, in office to have to contend with. They're going to have to give an account of themselves. Uh, I think this can be strengthened by structures in, designed to empower those who are being accounted to. The NHS used to have something called community health councils from 1974 
They were set up by, of all people, Enoch Powell when he was Secretary of State for Health. And they lasted until 2003 when they were closed down by Alan Melbourne on behalf of New Labour. And they were area-based organizations with representatives from local councils, from the NHS itself, and from administrators. And they were empowered to comment on all service changes that were taking place. And if necessary, they could challenge them and take them to the Secretary of State over the heads of local administrators. Uh, there was even an umbrella organization in London. And both at the local level and in London, they had substantial research staff, which allowed them to know what they were talking about. This is all gone. There's nothing equivalent to that now. And I think that is something that needs to be thought about. As far as policymaking is concerned, all I would say there is that it needs to operate at all levels. There needs to be a democratic component at every department, for every ward, for every operating theater, or not for individual theater, but for every clinical department that does surgery, uh, for accident and emergency and so on. The argument is often made that in something like the NHS, this democracy is incompatible with expertise. Personally, I don't see that. Making policy needs expertise, but it's ultimately political because so many kinds of expertise are involved, as we're seeing right now in the making policy for the pandemic. And so, in my opinion, <clears throat> at the level of policy making, you should have democracy operating perfectly well. It will be better make policy as a result, and you co-opt any kinds of expertise that don't come up through the representative process that you may need. And even at the level of making individual technical decisions, such as patient care, I think the same principle should apply. The decisions have to be taken by somebody who will ultimately be responsible, but the decision-making process can be shared and should be shared. And uh, <clears throat> For example, even in surgery, the WHO checklist was introduced essentially to democratize surgery, to stop mistakes being made, safety being compromised by decisions being made by the top person, the senior surgeon, without taking into account the expertise of all the different members of the surgical team. So to sum up, I just throw out these ideas for discussion. When I read, again, alternative models of ownership, it seemed to me obvious that new thinking is needed and it's not likely to come from the sort of people who are commissioned to write that. So very serious reports and interesting reports, good information, but there isn't a glimmer of creative imagination about what it would really mean to have a democratically run public service. Thanks, Colin. That was a really great history and kind of current analysis and uh, really great questions as well. Um, so we're going to, before we go on to a general discussion, we're going to go on to Tarek Ali, um, who's going to go on to give his perspective on this period in Labour's history. Uh, well, uh, you know, I mean, I agree with virtually everything Leo and Colin have said, so there's not much disagreement. Uh, I would add a few things. Um, which is as follows, that how did Labour maintain its stranglehold and hegemony on the British working class and its politics and, and a monopoly of political representation of that working class, unlike the rest of the European continent? And I think the answer lies 
effectively, if you look at when the Italian and French communist parties became mass communist parties, it was during the Second World War, not prior to it. They weren't very large before it. It was the participation of these groups in the resistance against fascism that ended up when the war was won, as many, many people in Europe knew, largely by the sacrifices uh, of the Red Army. The biggest battles that broke the back of the Third Reich were fought on Soviet territory. And this was well known. You know, now you have to sort of explain to people that the war wasn't won by Private Ryan uh, uh, or just by a, a plucky little Britain that the real sacrifices were made <clears throat> in the East. And the combination of that and the role played in the resistance produced these mass parties. And in Britain, Britain was never occupied. I mean, it's an interesting counterfactual what might have happened had they been occupied. The Tories would have split because a large chunk of them would have collaborated with the uh, Nazis without any doubt, like the conservatives did all over the continent. Uh, Labour itself <clears throat> might have been divided with a collaborationist wing. The Swedish social democracy collaborated happily with the Third Reich throughout the Second World War, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. We don't know. But the fact that this didn't happen uh, meant that uh, Labour kept its hegemony. Interestingly enough, the party that was more important even than the Communist Party in the war interwar years <clears throat> and during the war was a strange hybrid party called the Commonwealth Party, which was led by radical intellectuals of one sort or another, J.B. Priestley, Richard Ackland, etc. And it had quite a lot of support. So that when uh, we had mock elections inside the British Army at the end of the war, can you hear me or not? Yeah, I, you're being very distracting, both of you, so I wish I could lose you from the screen because <laughs> I can't concentrate seeing your uh, movements. Uh, <clears throat> you don't have to listen to me, but just switch yourselves off. Uh, <clears throat> uh, that... Uh, uh, when there were mock elections at the end of the war within the British army in Cairo, the Cairo, famous Cairo assembly, it was already clear that the British soldiers had been radicalized like the soldiers all over Europe. And the Labour Party, of course, won a huge majority amongst the soldiers who voted in this mock assembly. The second party, the party that came second was the Commonwealth Party not the communists, but the Commonwealth were wiped out in the 45 elections. The communists did win two or three seats, if my memory is uh, uh, right. But Labour maintained its control, hegemony, representation of one of the largest industrial working classes in Europe uh, since the Germans one had been completely uh, destroyed or largely destroyed during the Second World War. And this gave the 45 government the impetus. The Second World War, the radicalization of soldiers, many of whom were workers in uniform, conscription, 
existed, the spirit that was developed, some of it was of course completely fake, but there was a strong element of anti-fascism during the uh, uh, war years, the alliance with the Soviet Union, etc. And that helped to produce and memories of what the Tories and right-wing Labour had done, as Leo pointed out, created this atmosphere of a huge electoral triumph. Uh, I mean, the entire Labour Party stood up and sang the red flag, uh, you know, when they went into Parliament, not just once a year uh, at the party conference. They just, you know, that was the mood and that was the spirit. Uh, That's the first point um, on why we had social democratic hegemony in Britain, unlike the continent. The second uh, point is this, which is underplayed, not by our friends here, but Ken Loach's film, which I liked, obviously it was very much focused on this and as a reminder to social democrats today of what was possible. Uh, But where it was weak and where the labor movement in Britain has tended to be extremely weak is on foreign policy. I mean, you know, the Labour Party and the trade unions were completely sold on the idea of British imperialism being a positive thing. There were always small minorities within Labour, without Labour, and within the trade unions, but the overwhelming majority were convinced that British imperialism was something uh, uh, to be proud of. Uh, and the notion that you know Labour granted independence to India. Look, in the year 1946, there had been a huge naval mutiny in India. There had been 26 big working class strikes, including a general strike. Uh, there had been mutinies in the army. <coughs> the prisoners of war who had deserted to the Japanese and had fought against the British were treated as heroes with Nehru putting on his lawyer's gown and defending them in the courts. So there was no way any government, Labour or Kotori, could have stayed in India. They made a mess of it the way they came out, but it was impossible for them to stay in. Labour didn't give independence to Africa. The Tories finally did that uh, during the Macmillan years, started the process. Uh, Labour MPs visited Malaya at the height of the communist insurrection. And there's a photograph of John Strachey, one time Marxist and others, standing uh, with local Malayan uh, reactionaries and British officers and watching at their feet the heads of decapitated Malaysian communists approvingly. And so I said that this is extremely important to remember, particularly given the campaign against Corbyn by the British state, not by the Tories or by the board of British deputies, by the British state to discredit him because they did not trust him at all on foreign policy. And in terms of foreign policy, I think there's no doubt Corbyn was the most radical. He wasn't a pacifist at all, but he was the most radical leader uh, uh, Labour has had, and that 
partially explains the shock horror because they weren't used to it, given what they were used to the uh, 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 Labour Party uh, doing. Um, so I think this, the, the foreign policy angle usually underplayed in discussions of 1945, not by uh, Leo or Colin, but generally uh, people tend to forget. I mean, if you look at what the Attlee government did, it shored up the empire. It supported the use of nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Attlee went behind the backs of the parliamentary party and decided that Britain should have its own nuclear bomb and authorized uh, 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 testing. Greece uh, <clears throat> has already been mentioned. In effect, Labour had choices. It could have decided to remain aloof and be a neutral Britain aligned neither to the Russians nor the Americans. There was a real choice, but they decided to go along with the Cold War uh, foreign policy and institutions being developed in the United States, NATO being the most prominent uh, 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 of them, but many others uh, as well, and effectively became, became the uh, promoters of US foreign policy. The Attlee government did that. And the labor right was extremely hardline on all these questions. There was a divide in the party between left MPs even then on many wars, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, uh, right down to Iraq. But a majority of the labor, parliamentary labor party went along with all the imperial wars that were uh, being fought, did very little, the mainstream of the party to defend apartheid, uh, to denounce the creation of an apartheid state in South uh, Africa, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that I would stress. Thirdly, just to be a, a, a bit more contemporary, the, you know, the membership of the Labour Party we are very happy they're half a million members. But the period we're talking about, the 40s and the 50s and the early 60s, the Labour Party had seven, eight million members. Admittedly, many of these were via trade union affiliation, whereas now most of the members have been recruited, have been recruited as uh, individuals. And the question arises, uh, as to how long they'll stay, or half of them at least. Will they be demoralized and leave? As many people realize this could well uh, happen. And what will stop this is for groups like Momentum and others inside and outside the Labour Party to campaign on issues, as Colin has pointed out, like the National Health Service, regardless of what the Labour front bench is up to or the parliamentary Labour and these campaigns have to unite socialists inside and outside the Labour Party, uh, because all the things Colin has said on the NHS are really obvious. I mean, you know, he spells them out very cogently. But without this, let's not talk about a National Health Service. I mean, just during this crisis, you have a real structural problem. St. Thomas's Hospital in London is the richest hospital in the country. King's Hospital, not so far off, isn't rich. Uh, when there's a crisis in um, uh, medical equipment and gowns, etc., PPEs, St. Thomas's Hospital 
hires two private planes to fly to Eastern Europe, do a deal with an Eastern European government and bring the PPEs back to their hospital. To their hospital. Kings can't afford to do that, leave alone many other hospitals in the north of England and Scotland. So there's been this attempt to break up the NHS, which is still going on. And one of the big weaknesses, I think, uh, it was difficult to do in the 50s, but certainly the Wilson government should have done it, is to have a state pharmaceutical industry. They were scared to take on the pharmaceutical companies after the war for whatever reason, but Wilson could have done it and uh, uh, is a creator state pharmaceutical industries. And together with that, also to have a system where if you're a doctor in the National Health Service, you have to make a choice. If you're working for the National Health Service and employed by it, you can't work for a private hospital. I think I may be wrong, and Leo will correct me if I am, that is the situation in Canada, or has been, uh, I was told by a senior Canadian uh, uh, health expert that, you know, this is one way we've preserved <clears throat> the public health service in Canada, is you can't say we're working for both, so consultants basically slope off to where they can make more money, and there are huge waiting lists in the NHS, and that I think Labour, whether they'll do it or not, we don't know. The last point uh, is this, none of this is going to happen without independent campaigning on a semi-permanent basis and mass movements. So going out and clapping, we all do it. You know, I haven't uh, done it today because, uh, 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 because, <laughs> because of the show. We all do it, but on its own, it's empathy politics. It's very nice. It makes us feel good. It does absolutely nothing in terms of political campaigning. It's a feel-good thing like so many other things are these days. And so a campaign is the one thing we need with a list of demands, some of which uh, uh, Colin has uh, uh, outlined. And that I think is the way to go forward because the Labour Party, I think, is moving rather rapidly now. Uh, judging by Starmer and Rayner's statements on various things to the center. I don't personally think they'll become hardcore Blairites, by the way, because that would be to drive people out. But I think they will return to their new form of uh, 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 center politics and try and uh, get rid of or you know, destroy the left as peacefully uh, uh, as, they, as they can. So uh, a lot of responsibility rests on organizations like Momentum. Is it largely going to remain an electoral body, go out and campaign for labor, right or wrong, in the elections? Or is it going to be a political campaign? That, I think, is a central issue that now faces socialists and Momentum members inside the Labour Party. I'll stop. That was great. Thanks so much, Tariq. That was really insightful. And, and I like that highlight. We had lots of questions about, um, about foreign policy come up. I'll try to sum up. Some of the questions I think we have come up and people in the chat have come up and maybe get all three of you to just have a go um, at this one sort of big combined massive question. Um, so I think one thing that was really highlighted in the questions 
was just looking at some of the structural reasons behind the sort of change um, in the post-war labor government or, or the, what Leo sort of called, you know, the demands becoming a sort of stopping point. Um, and I think we had some questions about uh, the internal conflicts within labor getting us to that point, what the structural reasons were. Um, I think there was, a, you know, questions about foreign policy as well, what made labor's foreign policy so conservative and what, you know, what that interplay was between both the domestic and the foreign, again, coming to that kind of where rather than that being an opening became a kind of constraint. So I think if, if all three of you could kind of speak to, speak to that. And I think a lot of people asking about um, a bit more of how you think those issues from, from that time, from particularly that wartime moment and that post-war government, um, how they apply to us, um, apply to us today and what, um, you know, what, what, what we can, what we can learn, how some of those tendencies have, um, have survived or haven't, even if they, you know, look a bit, um, look a bit different. So if you could maybe speak a bit more and a bit more um, concretely about anything from anywhere with it, within that, that would be great. I don't know if we want to have the same order or go backwards, sure, go back to Leo. maybe go back to Leo and have that same order and finish with Tariq. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a very well posed question. And, and I think that uh, Tarek's point about alternate parties um, is where you begin in a way. Uh, in the British first past the post system and in the context of the hegemony of laborism over the British working class, partly by virtue of uh, the way in which trade union members were tied to the party. Uh, Tarek, in fact, individual membership in uh, the 1940s was in the tens of thousands. Uh, the vast majority of the membership, although individual membership increased by the 50s, uh, was entirely uh, trade union subscriptions, uh, indirect and really involuntary, and certainly didn't have anything to do with the making of socialists. Uh, necessarily. Um, and insofar as that was the case, then what really mattered in Britain was the balance of forces, the balance of socialist forces or anti-socialist forces inside the Labour Party and inside the Labour movement. Uh, and in that respect, uh, it, to pick up again the point about foreign policy, but in relation to uh, the internal democracy or the lack of it in the party. The thing that most upset the British ruling class and political establishment as labor was coming into power in 1945 was a speech by Harold Lasky as, as head of the national executive in which he said the labor party would not be bound by Churchill's alliances that Attlee had agreed to during the war and that labor foreign policy would be governed by the sovereignty of the party conference. And it was the incredible fear that radicals in the labor party would determine labor foreign policy that reinforced this concern that labor embrace the parliamentary conven conventions of the British constitution which is that once you're elected as an MP, 
You are not responsible to the party that got you elected. In most cases, could have run Mickey Mouse in your constituency and would have been elected, but are instead responsible to the government of the day, which is, of course, constitutionally responsible to the monarch. But in any case, is a government which is oriented, as has been the case with the later leadership, to class harmony, uh, to compromise with the establishment, rather than class struggle and transformation. So it does come down then to the real question becoming, what is the process of struggling for radical policies within the framework of the Labour Party apparatus, within the framework of uh, uh, the party constitution. That's one dimension of this, right? And that's why the issue of conference uh, sovereignty uh, and who gets elected to conference, who is accountable in the Labour Party to whom, to pick up Colin's point on accountability, really matters. Secondly, however, in terms of what was shown to be the case by the late 1950s, 1940s, with the elan and spirit that, uh, of socialism, however vaguely that was defined in 1945 having been lost, is that you saw labor, imaginative Labour Party figures like Richard Crossman and Tony Benn going back to William Morris and quoting him on saying, our first task, our first priority is to make socialists. When Tony Benn was asked by his constituency party, when he got the nomination to run as an MP from Bristol and asked what, how he would define his role as an MP, he said that. My role will be to make socialists. Crossman had said this two years before in a big speech, picking up now. That has to go up and down in terms of what to do now. It's not only a matter, of course, it isn't education apart from mobilization and campaigning, as Tyrick says. The two have to go together. There's plenty of campaigning that doesn't involve socialist development and education, unfortunately, right? Uh, and we need the type of campaigning, the type of mobilization that somehow interlinks with what you are trying to do in these sessions, right? But it also has to go up. That is, it's also the responsibility of people who are trying to make socialists to do what the Thatcherites did. That is to make the MPs read Hayek, which is what they did. Uh, the Blairites did this. The Blairites tried to turn everybody who was nominated into Blairites and had a big orientation to it. The labor left needs to do this or you're gonna end up with people who sounded very radical in supporting Jeremy Corbyn, just as so many people like Healy and Callahan, et cetera, were major figures on the British left in the 1940s. And then ended up being right-wing social Democrats. Right? So this has to go up as well as down. I'll leave it at that, thanks. Thanks, Leo. Colin? Uh, I would just uh, <clears throat> pick up one point that Tarek made about, <clears throat> uh, I agree that I think Stammer doesn't show any signs of wanting to be a Blairite. It's not clear to me from the signs that he gives off what he exactly wants to do, except to 
uh, <coughs> in some way make the Labour Party electable again. But to my mind, the kind of extreme centre, to use Tarek's phrase for it, that he's likely to gravitate towards is fatal from the point of view of retaining hegemony. The Labour Party has already lost hegemony in a significant, electorally speaking, in Scotland, in a new and important chunk of ex-industrial England. It seems to me that the leader of the Labour Party doesn't need right now to be making violent, pointed attacks. I think they're needed, but it's interesting to see that even the <coughs> Financial Times and the Health Service Journal are calling for an inquiry to begin now and not sometime later when it will all be, you know, calmer and so on as the government wants. I think that he should be calling for that now. But I also think the most important thing is to focus on the real victims of this pandemic. And it's extraordinary to me that that is not the theme that he's begun with. He doesn't seem to me, and it seems to me the job of the uh, <coughs> radical left is to force that to become the next, force that to become Labour's major job. What follows the, the pandemic must be a way of securing the future of the people who are bearing the cost of it now. And... I, I agree very strongly with uh, <clears throat> with what um, with what Colin has said. I think the Labour leadership really, uh, understandably, from one point of view, they didn't want to be seen as disruptive in the middle of a huge nationwide epidemic and crisis. But I think they, they bent the stick too far in remaining silent. And there is growing anger. It has been growing for the last few months at the total chaos that has existed in Britain with the failure of the government to understand uh, what this epidemic was with talks of herd immunity, basically following the line Trump is following in the United States and failing to see what other countries in, uh, in Europe or for that matter, China, once it recovered from its grave error and not recognizing it and trying to downplay it, once they did, I mean, they moved like lightning, as everyone knows, and they've now recovered to a large extent. And the lockdown has ended in many, many Chinese cities because they could do that. And uh, Britain failed to do that. Britain failed to do that. It's uh, lost large numbers of people, not just elderly people. Uh, and I think any serious Labour opposition uh, should be now right there in the front uh, uh, dealing with all this. Um, second point I, I, I want to make to stress is that Leo's of course absolutely right that the trade union vote and subscriptions dominated the Labour Party and there were times when even on the left to some of us it appeared a bit, gro a bit grotesque that a big left-wing trade union leader who we all supported, by the way, Frank Cousins, would march up the Labour Party conference hall. Uh, hall. A debate was the big foreign issue, uh, foreign policy issue was nuclear disarmament, which conference won. Britain should abandon its weapons and the right fought and fought and fought and Nybevan capitulated completely uh, uh, to, to defeat that line. But I mean, what used to all happen 
their right-wing and left-wing trade unions, a trade union general secretary would lift his card and say, cousins, transport in general. And you knew that this was not just cousins, the individual, this was two million block votes in favor of CND. So, the, you know, we tended to ignore it, but now it's different. And I think the changes in Scotland, which aren't socialist changes, but we just created a new social democratic party, the SNP, came about through a youth insurrection, largely. And the Corbyn's victory was carried out by large numbers of young people hearing him talk, listening to what he was saying. And as he himself put it several times, all I was saying were fairly traditional left social democratic ideas, which many of us had believed in, but young people hadn't, like education, health service, uh, etc. How it will <clears throat> move forward, I think, will depend also to a certain extent on what happens in Scotland. Because this, the big change, has been that you can't just talk now of British politics, it's Scottish politics and English politics, and to a certain extent, uh, uh, Welsh and Irish politics uh, too. That has changed. The, the, the breakup, as Tom then presciently wrote about, isn't completed, but uh, you can see the cracks there. To that has been added, to must be added, is that the Corbyn reforms and, you know, uh, didn't have enough time uh, to transform labor councils. One of the huge problems activists face is having extremely congealed right-wing labor councils throughout the Blair and Brown years have grown accustomed to dealing with officialdom and to be blunt, accepting bribes from builders, etc., etc. They are corrupt to the core, whether they're labor councils or Tory councils. And on these councils where you depend you know, local people depend on them. There hasn't been a, a, a big shift. I, this should not be um, left alone. I hope the Labour leadership doesn't stop attempts to transform these councils. But as for what they're going to do after the epidemic, the governments in power, whoever they are, I'm pessimistic, actually. I, I, I do not believe this thing, you know, this has altered everything. We get very excited, newspaper headlines and cliches dripping off the tongue of many on the social network. The world has changed. I'm sorry. The world hasn't changed. The, uh, um, the pandemic has killed lots of people, but it too will become a memory. Have no doubt about that. They did nothing after 2008, a huge crisis of the system. And many thought and wrote, people, pro-capitalist columnists, now we have to make structural reforms. I really get rid of the neoliberal system <clears throat> or curb it, regulate it. Didn't happen. They carried on as before. And I think very little is going to happen once the uh, virus has been crushed. That's my honest opinion. Unless that is where I said mass movements, campaigns, obviously with as many MPs as we can rally around them, 
Corbyn will be a central figure in this and John McDonnell and others. The official Labour Party is not going to. Uh, Starmer, uh, uh, you know, even he may be well-meaning on some of these issues, but he's an appalling public speaker. Uh, people have uh, been attacking Corbyn on that front with a lack of charisma, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, uh, will find that this is going to be a huge uh, uh, problem, and there's no one on that this front bench, as I see. I have to be blunt about this: who can play that role in national politics? Even though you know one is sympathetic to 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 some of them, so th the lesson. If we want something to change, we have to fight and argue uh, and be for it with a program. Leo says some of the campaigns aren't socialist. This is true. I mean, but a campaign with very clear demands on climate change, on uh, the National Health Service, on education, uh, on education, uh, on public housing, desperate need on attacking the uh, high rent landlords. All this has uh, got to be done and it has to be done, of course, with as much support from above, but ultimately it fr from below. And this otherwise the half a million, quarter of a million activists in the Labour Party will be left to do what? wait till the next general election and organize a nice conference a year. No, they have to be active outside election periods. I think if we fail to do this, we will suffer and probably lose again, because don't be too sure that a right-wing Labour leadership or a centrist Labour leadership, uh, which isn't Corbyn, will automatically win the next election. I don't believe that. I don't think Starmer is going to win over the Northeastern constituencies just like that, given he was the main figure uh, responsible uh, for getting involved in the uh, conservative campaign to uh, try and block the verdict. This is not a pleasant thing for many people to hear, but Corbyn was defeated largely because the Labour Party decided, including many of Corbyn's allies, on the best ways of avoiding a referendum decision taken in public view in which a majority voted to quit. So that raises the question of democratic accountability in a very public way, whether we like it or not, that is what did them in. It wasn't the so-called anti-Semitism or foreign policy. It was effectively the Labour Party's decision not to have any alternative, serious alternative to implementing that referendum. I don't blame Corbyn personally on this, but his party and his close colleagues certainly are responsible. Thanks so much, Tariq. Uh, and thanks, Colin and Leo. Um, I thought one thing I really got out of that call was just the, the importance and the centrality of British foreign policy and British imperialism to discussions going on in the Labour Party at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and also um, just how important it is that we keep on supporting our NHS and healthcare workers, not just through clapping, but also by joining campaigns and continue to mobilize. Uh, we've got the great We Own It campaign, which I think already posted in the chat. Um, other campaigns like Keep Our NHS Public, um, Momentum, um, and of course, TWT. 
Um, so TWT are trying to organize as many online spaces for people to interact as possible. TWT have created step-by-step -step guide for supporting people to run political education and organizing meetings online. We will post a link in the chat now. Please keep an eye out for reading groups and other kinds of political education, organizing meetings, and of course, tune into this call at the same time in two weeks. Uh, we are contractually obligated to say that. Um, <laughs> finally, uh, we will say one more time, if you are able to join the TWT Supporters Network, um, I think that the link was posted in the chat, please do so if you have the means. We know, again, it's a tough time, um, but it is also a tough time for organizations like TWT to try to keep uh, series like this going and just all the work going and trying to keep us on the left together and in a space where we can move demands and campaigns uh, forward. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up now. In two weeks, we'll be back again with Leo and um, our guest will be Hilary Wainwright to talk about the new left of the 1970s. Um, we are also, there's lots of questions about uh, the COVID pandemic in the chat. We're going to sort of go through them. There will be um, a session, the last session with Sam Gindin um, and other guests will be on the pandemic in particular and uh, we'll, we'll have a whole session dedicated just to that. Um, and right now we're just going to thank you for tuning in and see you two Thursdays from now. And thanks again to our wonderful uh, guests for all their insights. Thank you. Good night.